0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well.
1: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Another really easy way to help the show grow is by going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating, and leave a book that you'd like to hear in one of the reviews. And I'd like to quickly reply to one of our reviews recently for, uh, who wants to hear The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. And, uh, while I would love to read that book for the show, it's actually not in the public domain. Um, so all the books that we read on here are in the public domain, which basically means they're over like 80 years old and they belong to everybody. Well, The Bell Jar, I checked it out it was, uh, published in 1963, so... Well, I would love to read that for you, I legally cannot. <laughs> so if you want to leave a, a book in uh, the review section, uh, feel free to do so, and I'll check if it's in the public domain. And if it is, then maybe we'll read it on Sleepy. And as always, the music that you're hearing on this show is played by my good friend James Lepkowski, who's playing this on this little uh, guitar ukulele thing that he made. It's officially October. And since this is the first October that Sleepy's ever seen, I figured we'd do some nice, kind of quiet, but spooky stories. I've gotten a lot of ideas sent to me from listeners, um, but I think the best way to start this October book series is by going with Edgar Allan Poe, kind of the king of darkness. I have a book of his, uh, short stories, which I've read a bunch of times, um, And we're going to start off with the telltale heart. And if you're awake for it, we'll probably roll right into the black cat. Now, these are a little spookier than the other stories that we've read on Sleepy. So, if they're keeping you up, just go to any other one of our episodes before this. So now, get real comfy in your bed. Fix your pillow just how you like it. Lay your head back. And close your eyes and let me read to you. The Telltale Heart. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing a cue. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and, thud- and thus rid myself of his eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then when I made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out. And then I thrust my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, Oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, and I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door, a watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in. I was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, where the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. In the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the hall. Presently, I heard a slight groan. I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo. The terrors that distracted me—I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first light noise when he had turned in bed. His fears had been, ever since, growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, "There is nothing but the wind in the chimney." Is only a mouse crossing the floor, or is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. He has been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel although he never saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length, a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot out from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person. I directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot and now have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over acuteness of the senses now I say there came to my ears a low dull quick sound such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton I know that sound well too it was the beating of the old man's heart It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder at every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of night, I made the dreadful silence of that old house. So strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still but the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone stone dead I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes there was no pulsation he was stone dead his eye would trouble me no more if still you think me mad you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body the night waned and I worked hastily but in silence First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind. No blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha ha. When I made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the secret door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what I had now to fear. There entered three men was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought cherish into the room. and desired them here for the rest of their fatigues while I myself in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still, they sat and still chattered. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling. But it continued and gained definitiveness. Until at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt, I now grew very pale. But I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased. And what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath and that the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly More vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? And now, again, hark, louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Hear, hear, it is the beating of his hideous heart. The black cat. For the most wild, yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet, mad I am not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburden my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly and without comment a series of mere household events. In their consequences these events have terrified have tortured have destroyed me yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me they have presented a little but horror. To many they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter perhaps some intellect may be found, which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my mouth and In my manhood, I derive from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him it was frequent occasion to test the paltry relationship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not incongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusions to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mentioned the matter at all for no better reason than it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty... I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend and temperance, had—I blush to confess it—experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog when by accident, through affection, they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me. For what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old, and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated, from one of the haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from its socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty, but it was, at best, a feeble and unequivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all the memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, A frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme horror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left, as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who is not? a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not. Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence in its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning in cold blood, I slipped a noose around its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from its eyes, with the bitterest remorse in my heart. Hung it because I knew that it loved me, and because I felt it would give me no reason of offense. Hung it because I knew that in doing so I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful, and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, the servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entirely worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave any possible link unperfect. On, on the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins, the walls, with one exception had fallen in. This exception was found in the compartment wall. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with a very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven a bas relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope around the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house Upon the alarm of the fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some of whom the animal must have been cut off from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of the other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of freshly spread plaster, the lime of which but the flames and the ammonia from the carcass had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months, I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period, there came back to my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed but was not remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me upon the vile haunt which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance with which to supply its place. One night as I sat half stupefied in a den of more than infamy. My attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully large as Pluto and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my head, and appeared delighted with my notice. This then was the very creature of which I was in search. I once offered to purchase it off the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated. But... I know not how or why it was. His evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed me. By slow degrees these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature. A certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty prevented me from physically abusing it. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added, no doubt, to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait, and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Wherever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its lonesome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, my absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own Yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me have been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would have been possible to conceive. My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of the object I shuddered to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, a ghastly thing of the gallows. Oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and death. And now I was indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity. And a brute beast, whose fellow I contemptuously destroyed. A brute beast to work out for me. For me. A man fashioned in the image of high God. So much of unsufferable woe. Alas. Neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the Thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimate, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased my hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outburst of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself. My uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me, upon some household errand, into the cellar of an old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe, and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand, I aimed a blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife, goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal. I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished I set myself forthwith, and with entire deliberation, to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one point I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another I resolved to dig a grave for it on the floor of the cellar, Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well that was in the yard, about packing it in a box, as if merchandise, with usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims for a purpose such as this cellar, was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness in the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection, caused by a false chimney or fireplace, that had been filled up to make and resemble the rest of the cellar. I had no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, But with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair, with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish the floor was picked up with the minutest care I looked around triumphantly and said to myself here at least when my labor has not been in vain my next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wickedness for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death had I been able to meet with it in the moment There could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed by the violence of my previous anger, and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe, or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned upon my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night, at least, Since its introduction to the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept, even with the burden of a murder upon my soul. The second and third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries were made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of police came, very unexpectedly into the house, and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for a third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle, My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee of my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word, by way of triumph to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last, as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health, and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house, and the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls, are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of brickwork which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. And may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in damnation. Of my own thoughts, it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party on the stairs remained motionless to the extremity of terror and awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall, It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red-extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb,